Okay, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. We'll pick up where we left off like every week. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, I I beg of Your help by Your Holy Spirit that I represent Jesus' original intention in the parable and His application to us. So help me think clearly. Help me deal honestly with the text and then work in our hearts by Your Spirit to love what we see to the satisfaction of our eternal well-beings and the glory of of the holy name of Jesus. Amen. One thing becomes 
very clear about Jesus. In the Gospels as a whole, and as we have seen now for a while, in the Gospel of Luke. And that is, he seems to be very concerned with our money, with our possessions, what we do with them and what we don't do with them. Jesus is just constantly, unashamedly direct about our stuff, about our finances. Let me, I'm just going to give you a taste. All but two of these are from the Gospel of Luke. Just a taste of how Jesus in His ministry constantly hits us. You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Sell all your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, said Zacchaeus. And Jesus answered him, Today salvation has come to this house. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus, looking up, saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them because they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's just a taste. Again, why, Jesus, why does He express such a radical concern with what we do? with our money. I mean, isn't that one of the taboo subjects of life? Religion, politics, and how much money do you make and what do you do with it? But the reason is summed up in the fundamental principle of our existence that Jesus Himself laid out in Luke chapter 12, if you remember, verse 34. For where... Your treasure is. There will your heart be also. In other words, the reason money is so crucial is that what we do with it 
points to where our heart really is. And where our heart is, that means what we are worshiping at any given moment. And when the heart is set on something, it cherishes it, it treasures it, it looks to it to bring it its happiness, its satisfaction. And, and that dynamic right there, that is what worship is. So, as we now turn to Luke chapter 16 here, many commentators call this parable of the unjust steward one of the most difficult in all of Luke to understand. That's why even with a few of you last weekend, I said, why don't you read ahead and tell me what you think? Because when you read what we're, we just read and what we will read through in a first reading, here's the general response after you're done. What in the world is he talking about? Okay. Because it looks on the surface like Jesus is praising the unjust, dishonest actions of a scoundrel. And then Jesus says to his disciples, My disciples, you are not as wise as these worldly, crooked people. So, we're going to be reading slowly through this story of Jesus gives, it's called a parable, in order to see His one main point. That's what parables are. It's what it means. It's not like a whole bunch of hidden ideas with each little line. There's a story to illustrate a point. Okay, so we're going to read through it to see what is that point, and then we're going to Continue on and see how Jesus himself, when he's done with the parable, how he applies that one point to Christians, to his disciples. Like we'll see in verse 9, he says, here's the application, be generous. In verses 10 to 12, here's the application, it's in the little things and in the big things. Here's the application, verse 13, you cannot serve God. And money. All right, so let's go to it. Chapter 16, you there? Start with verse 1. And he, Jesus, also said to his disciples. Notice this now. He's directing what we're going to be hearing, particularly to his disciples. We'll see later in the chapter. There are Pharisees, non disciples, that are there. But this is my people whom I'm calling by my name. Listen up. There's something we're supposed to hear. So he also said to his disciples, and here he goes with his story. There was a rich man who had a manager, a steward that was his employee. And charges were brought to this rich man who owned the estate, the business, the corporation. There were charges brought to him that this man, his chief financial officer was wasting his possessions. Okay, there, there it is. You got these two guys, you got the employee, and you have his boss. 
The boss believes the charges. This guy's been dishonest. And he's, quote, wasting his possessions. And so the boss fires him. You see that verse 2. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Okay. In today's terms, give me all your records. I want to see the books. Clean out your desk. By the end of the week, you're gone. I'm letting you go. So this guy now, he's shocked. He's depressed. He's scared like any of us are in those kind of situations. And he says to himself, too, what am I going to do now with my life? How am I going to eat? How am I going to live? And so like one of Shakespeare's characters, he turns to the audience and he speaks to himself out loud. See that in verse 3 and 4? And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master has just fired me, He's taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I've decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Okay, so here he is. I mean, I'm a small, scrawny guy, and I'm not going to be a good ditch digger, and who wants to do that miserable work? Anyway, begging is too humiliating. And he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a plan to secure his future. He's looking ahead a week and a month and a year, and he plans. And the solution he comes up with is pretty darn clever. He says, I got a plan. I got a plan that will protect me financially next week and next month when I'm out of this job. I got a plan that will put me in good stead with all these other rich business people who are dealing with my boss. They're going to really appreciate me when I'm out of here. So they'll welcome me into their homes, become their stewards, and get work. They're not going to forget. That's what he means when he says, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management by this job, people may receive me to their houses. So his hope is that what he's going to do for these guys, they're not going to forget. And they're going to be there for him in future employment. And here's the whole point of the parable. This guy was wise enough to plan for his future. He had a plan And that's the point. Now, here's the plan in verses 5 to 7. Jesus says, And so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? Now, this guy knew how much he owed. He wants this guy to say it. 
So he hears himself and what he's going to do for him. And the man said, a hundred measures of oil. This is in the tens of thousands of dollars in our currency today. And he said to him, a hundred measures of oil. He says, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. You only owe 50. Now he cut it in half. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Cut it by 20%. Quickly, Mr. Smith, how much you owe? How much you in debt to my master? And kaboom, 20% off. 50%. Off what they owe. This guy just made some friends. That's the point. Let me just put a parenthesis for a minute. So what, what, okay, what, what's happening here in the culture that probably these people are picking up on? Scholars put out three options of what this guy's doing. The first, he is really sticking it to his boss, getting back at him, costing his boss even more profit and money. Okay, I don't think that's what he's doing. Precisely because Jesus is going to praise what he's doing. And he wouldn't be praising crookedness like that. Second option is that what this guy is doing, because in Judaism, in the Jewish culture of Palestine, this guy should not be charging interest. And maybe he is, because a lot of these business people did. Moses says, don't do it. And he's wiping out the interest. I don't know. It's possible. But the third option, most likely what I think he's doing is removing his own commission. Sacrificing his own money because he's going to be paid back in the future with the favors. He's thinking, weighing today the money he may lose against the future long term, he says, much better choice. Because these guys are getting relieved of a large burden. So, this bookkeeping guy, he didn't just do it with two people. He did it with all of the debtors of his boss. Jesus just gives two examples. He's making many friends for the future. He's going to be loved by these guys. He was crafty. He knew how to look out for his future interest. He knew how to position himself for a better future. Okay, there's Jesus in the parable so far. His disciples are all ears. And they're waiting for the punchline of the story or of the parable where his boss or his master is going to come and somehow put this unjust steward in his place. And then Jesus shocks the disciples with what he says next in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness 
The master, Jesus says, is praising this unrighteous steward. Now, don't miss it. He's not praising the unrighteous steward for his unrighteous acts back in verse 1 that got him fired. That's why he's called the unrighteous steward. This is got him fired. That's not why Jesus is praising him. The text says he praises him for what happened later about his shrewdness, his wisdom, his looking forward. The master was impressed at the cleverness of this manager, of how practical he was in preparing for his future once he's gone. And so he commends him for that shrewdness. And that's the end of the story. That right there is the end of the parable. And then Jesus explains the point by an unexpected twist directed right at his disciples. So let's get the end of the parable and flow it right into Jesus' explanation. Verse 8. And then the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, cleverness. Jesus, let me explain, guys. The sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation, as I just explained, gave you a story about. They're more shrewd in dealing with their own generation of this world than the sons of light. You see it? Yeah? Let me just, let me, let me paraphrase my understanding of what Jesus is doing. Guys, do you see in the parable that an ordinary guy, an unrighteous steward, This man was wise enough, shrewd enough in acting for his own future benefit. Do you see it, guys? The sons of this age, unbelievers, are more wise in figuring out how to secure their own temporal future than believers are. That is, than sons of light are in figuring out how to secure their own eternal riches. That's his point. And then Jesus directly applies this beginning in verse 9. You see the words there? And now he goes, I tell you, my disciples, I tell you, in verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay, got it? Okay, let's go slowly. He says to his disciples, coming out of the parable, now you guys, Make friends. Got that? That's the command. Okay. How? He tells them how. 
by means, that means here's how, here's the way you do it, make friends by means of, and in the ESV translation, unrighteous wealth. Okay, here, there's the mean. Unrighteous wealth is the means by which you are to make friends. What do you mean unrighteous wealth? What is it? Well, okay, in the Greek, it's the word mammonos, which is just an Aramaic word that we come over to English, mammon. Mammonos in Aramaic just transliterates. Not a translation. Translation would be like money or wealth. But the transliteration is mammonos just like Abba, Father Abba goes over into Greek and over into English, so we just keep it. It's just a transliteration. It's the word mammon, which just means it's a term for wealth. It's a term for possessions, your livelihood. And so Jesus is saying, first then, don't hoard it. But you are to use the mammon generously for others for the purpose of making Friends. Okay, just got that? We're going to step, hold that there. Next, I want you to notice again verse 4. Because the structure of verse 4 grammatically is just like verse 9. Verse 4, in the parable, Jesus says, the guy's speaking to himself, I have decided what to do. Now, here's the grammatical parallel of verse 9. I have decided what to do so that when, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now, verse 9, and Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when, there it is again, do make friends with money so that when money fails, and it will, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So he says, as the, the man in the parable looked out for his immediate temporal future in the way he dealt with mammon, money, so you also, my disciples, are to look out for your eternal future in the way you are generous with your money, your possessions. It's his point. Now, why does Jesus call mammon unrighteous here? Because he calls it unrighteous mammon. It's a word for unrighteous, adikia. Probably because money, commerce, whether it's coins or paper or pigs or wheat or whatever we use in different villages or large societies or digital transactions, however it is, its mammon is unrighteous in that it constantly leads people to idolatry, to worship it. We're going to see that at the end of what Jesus has to say. To worship Mammon caused them to be selfish and thus unrighteous. In other words, so unrighteous mammon is Jesus' term for worldly commerce, wealth, coins, currencies that we use on this earth. 
It's what the world is he even he's making these distinctions. The sons of this age versus the sons of life. It's what the world uses in a godless way constantly, but he's saying what you are to take that same mammon and use for eternal purposes or God's purposes. So Jesus tells us, use mammon, your earthly wealth, as that man did in the parable, use it to gain friends for your future. But not for your your, your immediate temporal future, for your eternal future. See it? So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Who? Who are the they? That's just another exegetical question of this text, and scholars debate over it. It's, it's probably down to either one of two things that Jesus has in his mind. The they could refer to God himself. In other words, the majestic, royal, plural, they, heaven. And I think it's a possibility. But because of the, just the way he phrases it, make friends so that they... And, I, and either one, there's not a huge difference because God is sovereign and He is in all of it. And we're going to, I'm going to need to make the parenthesis as we constantly do with Jesus. He's saying, my disciples, those who are called by my name, those who are born again miraculously by nothing that you have done that has brought you to faith, there's fruit. And He's saying, this is what it looks like. You'll hear my voice. You'll do this. So it doesn't purchase heaven. It doesn't purchase God. It is the fruit of what happens in your life because you're my disciples. But the second is that the they may receive you into eternal dwellings refers to the friends. It refers to people in the resurrection who will come up to you and they will say, I have been spiritually benefited because of your money. You're supporting the gospel. It may be those friends that will welcome you. It could be a person who says, Looking back after the resurrection and this life of tears and pain and suffering and veil and joy in Christ and persevering and say, look at you guys right here. Not you, people in my mind. I'm up here, okay? You weren't there. That church on Prairie Boulevard on October 18th, 1981, when I walked in there, it wouldn't have been there unless you guys paid for it to be there. And, and there are people before you that built the church, but it was there operating because you made friends in heaven, and I'm one of them. It, it'll be 
That little villager from 1847 who will say, this is the precious missionary, but you people behind him who financed him to come to my tribe in Africa were friends forever. And Jesus says, when the earthly wealth fails, which it will when we all die, Jesus has already illustrated that, right? Built barns! This night your soul is required of you, you fool. Whose now will it be? You can't take it with you. So the way that Jesus has just put this already in Luke is just saying it this way. You will in the future. In the resurrection, you will see your investment. That's why He says, lay up treasures in heaven. Or moth will not destroy. They'll be eternal friends and dwellings to welcome you. He's saying, believers, we can all say, we will have prepared, like the guy in the parable, our future eternal friendships. You don't want to say, no, but I spent it all on Disneyland. I spent it all on bigger cars. I just had to buy clothes every month. It's what was new. I spent it there on bigger house payments. No, you want to say, I was faithful. I was securing a welcoming party for me in heaven totally by God's sovereign grace working in and through me. And that, what I just said, is what Jesus goes on now to make clear in verses 10 to 13. Because at this point, the parable, Jesus makes this first application. Make friends for yourselves with your money. And I think what's going on here is that Jesus is hearing what's happening in disciples' minds. Well, I'm not that well off though, Jesus. I mean, if I make more money down the road in the future, then I'll start tithing and then I'll start giving generously way above the standard. Or, and people do do this. It's mind-boggling. People say this kind of stuff. In the guise of Christianity, I do spend a lot of money on a lotto. But if I win the lotto, I'll give a lot to the gospel. I'll make sure that the, the gospel witness through the local church and missions and outreach is then supported. I think he hears that kind of thing going on in Christian minds. And so he says, starting with verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest, or literally unfaithful, unrighteous, in a very little, is also unrighteous in much. If then, guys, you have not been faithful 
in the unrighteous wealth, again, same term, worldly money, mammon, things, possessions, you, who in the world, I added the world, okay, who would entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, you're just a steward of what He's given you, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus is relentless, isn't He? I joke to my wife sometimes. Maybe we we'll take another break and we'll just do another Paul epistle, Paul's epistles or something. It's Jesus just week after week. It's just relentless. Lovingly. Relentless. One who is faithful in a little is also faithful in much, and one who is unfaithful or dishonest in very little will be so in much. In other words, he's saying character is character. Whether you're dealing with little things or large things, if a person is slack with the small things, they will be slack with much larger things. Whether it's handling a $25,000 a year income or a $250,000 a year income is his point. Or whether it's service. You know, some pastors are known for saying to young men who come up and say, I think I'm called to ministry. I, I, want, I think I'm called to serve and be a teacher and a preacher. And the pastor will say, good, we can work with that. Awesome. And right now, here's a broom and a vacuum cleaner. Clean the church. And when you're done in the closet, there's Ajax and there's a brush. Make sure the toilets in the church are spotless. Because time will tell whether that person could be entrusted with something larger in how they deal with that which is smaller. And then Jesus applies verse 10, faithful little, faithful much, to a specific example in verse 11 of handling money. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, worldly money, mammon, who will entrust to you the true riches? So the unrighteous wealth there does not mean the money that you got that you gained dishonestly and immorally and illegally. It's not what he means. He means what we have seen before. The stuff of this world in which we do commerce. And the point is there are things that are so much greater than money. But if one cannot handle money, he says, who is willing to let that person have responsibility of much larger spiritual things, most likely. When he says true, it's the word he uses, truth, true riches. And I think that those true riches that Jesus is pointing to is most, it may be something down here, may be responsibility down here, but I, I just think he's rooting it more in the future, in the resurrection, in rewards in heaven, the true riches of the future. And he goes into verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which 
is another's as a steward, that bossed illustration and all that we have is of God. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? This earthly life is a God-given stewardship that each of us is responsible for. It is the believer's preparation for the life to come. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we believers, Christians, not unbelievers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So here Jesus says, be faithful as a steward over all of the stuff that I give to you, my disciples. Be faithful so that you will be given that which is your own rewards in the resurrection. I'm just going to, I want to quote from a, John Piper summarizes these three verses, verses 10 through 12, this way. And I think he's dead on. Quote, It is fairly clear that the term true riches and the term that which is your own refer to the treasures of heaven, the pleasures of the age to come when we enjoy unbroken fellowship with Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is saying that we will not get those true riches if we have not been faithful with what we were given to use in this fallen world. He is referring to our money. That is, the material resources at our disposal here. If we have been stingy rather than using our money to lead people to faith, we will not enter heaven with its true riches of fellowship with Jesus. End quote. And then Jesus closes out His application with the obvious truth of verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This just sums up the whole passage of what he's been teaching. He says, disciples, use money to make eternal rewards in God. Don't let money become your God. Hold it loosely. Make friends for eternity by the way you dispense it. You cannot, and that is the Greek word, not may not, you can't. It is an impossibility to serve two 
masters at the same time and in the same way. God and money. Okay, just a little bit more. What does that mean? Okay. Think, got to think about what does he mean? How, what does it mean to serve money? Do we wake up in the morning? Wake up our master? Hello, Mr. Money, sir. What may I do for you today? How may I serve your needs? Okay, good. I, I'm going to prepare your breakfast and stay there, Mr. Money. I'm going I'm to bring the breakfast to you in bed. And then I'm going to take your clothing down to the dry cleaners and pick up the others that I left there yesterday and I'll come back and find out what other needs you have for me to serve. Is that what it means to serve money? Of course not. I can't mean that. Money, mammon, does not have any needs that it needs a slave in order to provide for. So Jesus, it can't mean serve in that sense. So what does He mean by serve? Actually, it means the opposite. Serving money means you look to money for what it can be and do for you. So you think. You, you look for what it can purchase, what it could buy, what security, what insurance, what toys. You're looking to the master, like a slave would follow around. He's got everything I need. That's what he means by serve. To serve money means you plan, like this guy in the parable. You, you position yourself, you position your finances, you position your money so that it can accumulate and it can maximize itself for your benefit. That's what it means to serve money. And so, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. So I've got to assume here that He means serving God in the same way He means serving money because they're mutually exclusive. He means you cannot serve money, and serve God in the same way at the same time, right? So what he's saying about serving God is the same thing he's saying about serving money. you got to look away from the money and look to God as the one who supplies your need. You look to God and say, no, 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 you're the one who has all the satisfaction. I, I will look not to money to bring it. I'll look to you, my Father, through Jesus Christ to bring me what I need. You don't look to money to provide your temporal happiness. You look to God to provide your eternal happiness in what you do daily. Serving God is the opposite of loving and serving money. It means to position yourself daily. You wake up thinking 
not, 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 not like ones who are worshiping money and live to study money and the, the market and spend all their time investing in that. You look. You can't look anywhere else other than this book. You spend time with your Savior in the book. You look as you wake up every day. How can I maximize, not money for me, but maximize God's promises and joy to me even now in the midst of life, work, family, church, setback, calamity, sickness, whatever. How can I maximize the joy that God brings now and for eternity? Jesus says, don't meet money's needs. It has none. And you don't ever think of serving as meeting God's needs. He doesn't have any. It means you are convinced He has my eternal well-being through the gospel of Jesus Christ in mind. And I trust Him. And I look to His Word. And I obey it. Because what he tells me to do, much more than what the stockbroker would tell his clients to do, God is perfectly right in how to position myself for the future. That's Jesus' point in verses 9 to 12. Don't worship money. Worship God. Now, I opened up this sermon by asking, why does Jesus seem to be so radically concerned about the way we handle our hard-earned money? And the answer has simply been because money represents that number one alternative to God as the treasure of our affections, of our heart, as the object of worship. And that's why Jesus says, don't worship it, but use it to worship me by investing it in your eternal future, by loving others with it in supporting the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll close in a second. Daryl. Bach, who's one of the major commentators on the Gospel of Luke, major exegetical commentators, summarizes this whole passage so well that I just, I'm just, I have to read it because it's just said so well, and then we'll close. Quote, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13 argues that life is a stewardship from God. This parable pictures the example of a man in dire straits who assesses what the future holds. By thinking ahead, he acts prudently to maximize his future interest. Jesus exhorts disciples to be prudent and use money generously, so that God will richly reward them in the life to come. He notes 
that people of this world are often wiser in preparing for future realities than are God's children. Jesus also notes that character is established in little things. What one does with little things is what one will do with larger concerns. So that if one is a poor steward of money or of other affairs in this life, how can one expect great things from God in the life to come? One needs to make a choice to serve God or money because one cannot serve both. A choice to serve God is a choice to be generous with money. Divided loyalties are prohibited. A generous stewardship now will yield a rich reward later. The disciple, just like the dishonest steward, should look ahead. The disciple should consider what God can do and what He has done. The follower should use money, and not selfishly, but generously and faithfully, so that one may possess all the future Riches God has for the disciple. And then he closes with the obvious. Once again, Luke makes the options crystal clear. So I just say, have you been purchased by Christ's blood? Have you been justified by faith alone in Christ? If that's you, then you have been born again. The Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart. And it means Jesus is speaking to you. And as we've seen in the last few weeks with Jesus' words, if you've been born again, it means you have ears to hear what He says. Come on up, sirs. So as we're singing, we'll be passing out the bread and the cup. We'll hold and wait and pray over together. And so if you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, you know that, you're more than welcome to partake of the cup and of the bread with us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that now, even now, especially in this most precious ordinance of communion, that you work. You work powerfully in the bread and in the cup and in the body here, joined together. The precious words of Luke 16. To the glory of your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.